You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Giles. A a, a big issue tonight. Look, we've got a a really interesting... Look, a lot's been happening in the last week um, and we've got a couple of interviews which I managed to pick up um, at the um, the Energy Networks Australia conference in Sydney last week while you were travelling in the southwest of New South Wales and um, happened to drive past the um, what will be the biggest solar farm in, in the state, I think. Yes, Charles, I was down at Gerilda really for, for a hobby of mine. Uh, Gerilda is where Ned Kelly uh, held up a bank, but there aren't any banks there anymore, so they obviously took a lot of fright from it. <laughs> <laughs> and I drove a big solar farm. <laughs> and I drove uh, during a rain interval. Uh, I drove up the road to Collyamberley Solar Farm and just had a look at one of these uh, solar farms under construction. And very efficient and effective it was. And all the posts were in, and they're just putting the panels on. And I think it was quite obvious driving, as I have through southwest New South Wales and western New South Wales recently, just what a lot of access there and scope there is for more solar in those areas. But of course. As we're hearing more and more, it has to be firmed up from time to time. Yes, well, we'll get onto that a bit later in the program, actually, because there's some interesting things happening um, with that. Um, Collyamberley, I think, is a 150 megawatt solar plant being built by Neowen and um, joins its Dubbo and Parks and Griffith solar farms and the Namurka one it's building in, in Victoria as well. Um, so I, I, I guess, Giles, the, the, you know, thinking about that, the big news for all the people, the, the gigawatts and gigawatts of solar that's lined up in, in the pipeline in New South Wales uh, was the uh, big news out of China this week that they're basically not going to be approving any more utility solar plants except for uh, poverty areas. And they've cut tariffs there. And they've also said that two thirds of China uh, is not going to have any new coal plants either this year. Uh, so there's a this is going to create a massive oversupply in the solar panel market. And I saw uh, Bloomberg uh, talking about a, a fall in solar modules of 30 to 35%, which should Extraordinary. Trans- it is. It's a, it's a very big news and I guess very welcome news to a developer that's thinking about pushing the button in the short term. But in the longer term, I see it as quite negative news in a number of areas. Uh, because it will force probably some, possibly some panel manufacturers to the wall, consolidation in the industry. And in the long run, the price reductions depend on the installed capacity growth, the learning rate. It's the most fundamental rule in all these new technologies that you get a 15% or so uh, unit cost reduction for every doubling of installed capacity. And if you, you know, China was 60% of the world market last year, and, and if it falls uh, sharply, we won't see the growth we need to keep the cost reductions coming. Yeah, I wonder if that's really the case, though, because I guess in the last time, we, we, we've had surpluses before in the Chinese um, manufacturing sector, and we've seen companies go to the wall. Um, quite often, they actually try and, um, the way they actually battle for that final, for that final market share is through efficiency. So I can't remember seeing a big price fall in solar modules and then it rebound to that same price afterwards. 
That, so, that, that may be right. And of course, we, we also need to remember that that's just this year. And I think uh, reading around, it was partly because a subsidy fund that China had, uh, which was in deficit by about 15 US billion. And <laughs> even in China, 15 billion can't be completely overlooked. No, that's exactly right. Look, and on the cost of solar, it was really interesting. I was at the Networks conference, a lot of people were talking about the solar um, and also this firming of solar. We'll, we'll get onto some of those subjects later on. But I just want you to listen to this um, interview I did there with um, Fluence and um, um, a guy called Brian Perus. Now, I know we had Fluence on a, um, a month or so ago, but um, they were actually still talking about some of the cost of solar and some of the cost of storage. Let's have a listen to it. Brian Perus, uh, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. Uh, my pleasure being here. It's really nice to chat with you today. Look, um, Fluence, um, you're head of global marketing strategy at Fluence. Um, your company has just signed with JIRA, the uh, Japanese energy giant and Australia's Lion Solar, an MOU to pursue large-scale solar and battery storage projects in Australia. And I think you're talking about two, three, four hours of battery storage. We've, we've been told for a long time, we're still told that battery storage is too expensive. Um, what are you thinking? We've been hearing battery storage has been too expensive uh, for the last nine years since I've ever been started in this. Uh, so it's a recurring theme, um, but it's not the case then and it's not the case now. Uh, we've been a big supporter of Lion since um, we've started working with them over two years ago. And they're one of the sort of most forward-thinking renewable developers on looking how to add flexibility to the renewable system. Um, as you mentioned, we just recently announced a, um, a three-way agreement with Jira Lion as well, and we're really excited to bring in another global player to really help in Australia, but also across the APEC market. So, what's the battery, what's, what's the business model then for sort of battery storage? Because we've sort of we've heard of battery storage as you know providing network services. We've heard of battery storage providing arbitrage. This seems to be about something different. Yeah, so the way we look at it, there's really eight business cases where storage is economic in most markets today. The, the one with Lion that they're really focusing on, and, and a lot of renewable developers, is around a solar peaker. Um, one of the challenges that Australia faces and other markets around the world face is a lack of flexibility. Um, so by adding storage to solar, you actually get a lot more flexibility. So there's a few interesting cases with it, but essentially if you look at it head-to-head -head with a gas peaker or even any thermal generation um, that's trying to deliver at peak, this is the lowest cost source of energy. It's dispatchable, it's flexible, and it has no emissions. You talk about lowest cost of energy. I mean, we've seen in the U.S. that um, in auctions for capacity, we've seen solar and wind plus storage beat out ga gas peaking plants. What sort of prices are you talking about in Australia? I mean, I think there was a discussion earlier on today with solar might have been falling below $50, maybe even as low as $40 a megawatt hour. Um, are those the sort of prices that you're seeing? And what price does battery storage put on top of that for, say, three or four hour storage? Sure, it does vary by market, um, but you're right. The prices we're seeing now are dropping under $50 for, for standalone solar um, in different markets, depending on installation size and things like that. Um, depending on what you want to do with the storage, storage can add short-term flexibility, so managing some of the variability of output, or it can really add sort of a, a really shift of delivery. Um, what we're seeing in Australia is, is probably somewhere between $15 and $30, $35 in additional cost to deliver sort of flexible peaking capacity on top of that solar. Um, so there's no other resource that can really deliver that type of pricing um, in the characteristics that you need. Absolutely. And, and what about, um, you were talking to me before too, um, you're based in um, South America, um, based in Peru actually, lucky you, um, and you've been keeping a close eye on the Chile market, which I think you said to me was something vaguely, well, 
well, quite similar to Australia in the sense that they've got a big transition between sort of coal towards renewables, um, and they've got a lot of solar capacity, but they're starting to see some really interesting th- things happening in their market. Yeah, we started looking at energy storage um, in Chile. Uh, we, the predecessor to Fluence, um, which was called AES, and one of our parent companies, really started looking at uh, storage in Chile about 10 years ago. We added storage back then um, into the market. There's now 52 megawatts of storage in the facility, or in the in the country. When we added that that 52 megawatts, we've seen a price decrease of about 36 million dollars per year um, in the market. And so it's a substantial. Uh, it's a substantial tool to really increase the flexibility. What they found is they had thermal generators, coal plants that just couldn't move around. And so that added flexibility and it really drove down sort of the network costs and the system operating costs. Um, Over the last few years, solar has really made a a large transition to the market. It's the lowest cost source of energy there. Um, What the industry has been finding is that the influx of solar has driven down pricing during the middle of the day to zero. Um, So you're now seeing zero you know, zero cost at the at the grid level and the wholesale level. And what that does is it has a, ramifications across the whole industry, but it does drive down costs for the end consumer. Are we going to see that in Australia, do you think? It's coming. Um, without flexibility in the system, um, there's going to be some challenges we're going to see in, in wholesale pricing and other markets. So the way we look at it is, uh, distri- you know, adding flexibility. If you, in... Um, In Queensland, if you're really adding a lot of solar to the market and you have coal which is inflexible from moving, something's going to have to give. There's not enough demand um, during the middle of the day to figure out what happens. Um, There's a few things that could happen, um, but really by adding flexibility, you can avoid some of the the negative ones and really be able to integrate the renewables plus be able to run your other generation assets as well. So what's a solar plant to do then? Um, Presumably add battery storage and um, maybe sort of supersize its connection facility or supersize the amount of... um um, the amount of panels it's got behind the meter to to take advantage of that. Yeah, solar plants are looking at a lot of different ways to to firm up their their and firm up and deliver the dispatch of their solar. So you are seeing a lot of interest both from Lion and a number of other firms to really add storage to their facility to be able to do that. Um, what also happens is too with a dispatchable unit. Uh, a renewable or any other one, you're able to then put it within the network, get places to really uncover and and unlock some value that might be embedded. Um, The challenge in a system that doesn't have the flexibility that's needed is you just have to run the system at a much higher cost. You're curtailing energy. um, You can't transfer it from one place to another. Um, And so adding a a resource that does have storage like that gives you some of those tools that you didn't have before. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, with a solar and storage cost, if you, as, as you're saying, between about $70 or $80 a megawatt hour, I mean, I'm not too sure what the future for gas generation is in the country. I think a lot of people are asking that question as well. Um, my view is you never build a gas peaker anywhere in the world ever again. Um, that's been our view. Um, that's the reason I got excited about this industry. I think it really does change the set. Um, storage enables a lot of things. Um, gas peakers is not one of them. Fascinating. And, and what else is happening around the world? I mean, we, we're sort of focused on Australia, but um, any dramatic things happening elsewhere in the markets? Uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, interest in the UK. The UK is really adding a lot of flexibility into their network through storage and other demand response type um, activities, both behind the meter and front of the meter. Um, and that's driving an enormous uh, cost reduction. And uh, we've seen you know cost reduction for s- some of those services dropping 50, 60 percent um, in just a short one to two year period, right? And so that's where we're seeing the real value come up. Um, but I think the UK, you know, Australia is really uh, an exciting market. A lot of people are really interested in, in storage, and, and there's a lot of demonstration. Pro- well, more than demonstration, there's a lot of quite large projects out there in the market um, as well. The United States, Chile, and then uh, we are seeing interest in pretty much every other country. I think we now have. 
we have 16, we have energy storage projects contracted in 16 markets around the world. Um, and we've introduced them into the market, been the first person to introduce them to the market, about 12 of those. Well, congratulations on that. And uh, look, we've heard a lot about the Lion projects over the last couple of years. So hopefully now that you've got this MAU in place, we may see some, finally see some actual sort of, you know, hard announcements coming in the next few months. Yeah, the, the, Lion, the Lion group is really pushing hard and, and moving. The, the deal with JIRA is really going to be a, um, one that will help continue to, the relationship and really deliver. So we're looking forward to it as well. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Brian Perouse, um, the Vice President from Fluence. Um, he's based in South America. Look, I'm not too sure whether the um, price of $40 to $50 a megawatt hour for solar um, is correct, but um, really interesting, well, it may well soon be with that excess of solar panels coming from China, but um, pretty interesting what he was saying about battery storage and the firming cost of that, even with three or four hour storage, just adding $30 a megawatt hour to the, um, to the price. Um, that's yeah. going to change things quite dramatically, I think. Uh, certainly $30 a megawatt hour would be a, a big um, uh, improvement on what we've seen so far. And uh, you will have observed that a number of the newer projects, the projects that we're seeing as uh, transmission access, as the possibility of uh, uh, wind uh, having, having to be uh, abandoned, um, uh, we're seeing projects starting to uh, take advantage of a little bit of storage just to give them more flexibility and optionality. Even the uh, peak uh, demand for in front of the meter stuff is, is obviously moved to the early evening, but it's also got shorter. Uh, and so an hour or an hour and a half or two hours of storage uh, can make quite a difference to your average price and uh, probably getting closer to being in the money, although only just there, I would suggest. Well, it was interesting because um, Sanjeev Gupta came out with a big announcement uh, last Friday. Um, bringing together five industrial and mining companies to, um, to an eight-year contract for supply for them uh, from 2019, by which time they hope to have completed or almost completed a 220-megawatt solar farm. Um, they say that this price includes firming. Um, they haven't actually said how they're going to be doing that initially because I don't think they're going to be building that big battery or the pumped hydro by that time, or certainly not the pumped hydro by that time. Um, and at the same time, they're talking about a 20 to 50% reduction on current energy prices. Um, this is pretty, oh, look, there's a few unanswered questions about this, but um, if this is possible, this is a bit of a game changer, I think, in the. Um, um, in, in, in the Australian market because you're going to start to see big industrial consumers shifting over to new competitors, the Cymex Zens of the world, um, and taking away load from the big utilities who are basically stuck around their incumbent um, uh, fossil fuel assets. Well, Giles, I think you've hit the nail on the head with new competition. What we've seen, as m many of our listeners will know, is that in the past few years, the uh, Gentailers have tried to really be the gatekeepers for the new renewable energy and they've had a big focus on looking after their household customers uh, but leaving their business customers to look after themselves. And I think business customers have got fairly sick of this in general and are starting to branch out. And another thing we've heard often uh, from Jay Weatherill, who unfortunately broke his leg on the weekend. Yes, uh, I heard that. <laughs> that... that uh, <laughs> Uh, there isn't much competition in South Australia, and I think this has prevented some of these new pumped hydro stations getting up. 
And so uh, these new solar farms, uh, which can be built for modest cost, actually do offer uh, the chance for new entrants to get into the market and establish themselves. And their natural client base is not the retail market. It is the industrial and big business customers. So uh, we're seeing this work in South Australia, but I would like to see a lot more detail on this. I, I don't really like the sort of announcement where everyone's getting a cheaper price, but it's not. It seems to be coming out of a black box. I mean, there isn't any firming technology right now in South Australia other than gas or transmission. It's as simple as that. And, and you can't put a battery and a solar farm together uh, uh, and even, uh, I don't think, can get it done for $80 a megawatt hour right now uh, on a 24-hour, 24-7 basis. That's, that's what I think. Well, well um, we, we shall see. Um, they've apparently signed a contract to deliver that, so we'll, we'll, we'll watch with interest. I did try and find out some more information, and they said um, unique IP, um, but um, we'll have to see what that actually means in the in the future. Look, talking about gatekeepers, um, one of the things about the Energy Networks Conference, I mean, you and I have been to sort of many conferences together. It's interesting going to some of these renewables and storage conferences, you know, the sort of land of opportunity and all these wonderful ideas. Um, when you go to the Energy Networks Conference, you're dealing with basically a thousand people who are employed by monopolies, <laughs> regulated assets, and they're looking to defend that. And the, sort of the, the, the change in atmosphere is really quite, um, it's quite stark. Um, it's sort of um, not so much an opportunity as more of a threat in how to manage it, even though they actually recognise now that they do need to manage it. And um, before we just discuss that further, I'd just like to play this interview that I did with the uh, CEO of Energy Networks Australia, Andrew Dillon. Andrew Dillon, the Chief Executive of Energy Networks Australia. Thanks for joining um, Energy Insiders. Thanks for having me, Giles. Look, the um, conference you're holding this week, what's been the major, the two major themes or the three major themes? Um, I think that the major theme is how we prepare for the future. We've all seen, as you regularly report on, lots more solar and storage going into our electricity networks, lots of changes in the demand shape we're seeing. And so how do we as local grids manage that? How do we make sure it's an opportunity for those who are investing in that? And also, how do we make sure the whole system stays stable and get costs out for all consumers? Look, one of the things I'm picking up from hearing ministers, regulators um, and sort of service providers is this big shift to decentralised um, generation. And I guess that includes rooftop solar, battery storage and um, and the various software and the enablers that can um, link all that together. Um, you're um, releasing a report, you've been doing a report with the um, Australian Energy Market Operator. Um, one of the themes I heard, I think it was from Phil Blythe, um, just talking about we've got to get control of this asset in the sense that a lot of people are putting this stuff in, but no one actually knows what it is, where it is, what it's doing, etc. Yeah, it's about, so hopefully by the time this, this goes up, the paper will be out on open energy networks. So it's about us working with AEMO to determine what's happening out there with all this solar, with all this storage, and what can happen when we start to control this and start to give the right signals to people to manage their energy use, particularly manage when they've got things like batteries, um, to inject back into the grid when we need it, and to make sure the grid stays stable, make sure we don't need to invest more in the grid to upgrade it. Because what we really don't want to see here is there's three bad things we want to avoid. The first one is voltage frequency issues or even localised blackouts between lots of generation. The second one is networks starting to increasingly say, no, you can't connect, we're full. Or the third one is networks spending a heap of money to be able to handle that. So they're all the bad things we're trying to avoid. And the only logical way to avoid that is to orchestrate 
this local generation. And one of the things that you were talking about before was that um, battery storage, and you even mentioned Tesla Powerwalls, but I guess it's the same for some of the other battery um, appliances, that it's not just about sort of shifting energy and sort of storing excess solar and sort of using it later in the evening. It's actually being proving very adept at providing those system services and the grid services that um, you talked about. Oh, certainly. One of the things, if you talk to industry people, is that what's really interesting about the Tesla battery at Hornsdale is not necessarily how much total energy it's shifting, because in megawatt hours terms, it's not that big. But what is really interesting is the speed at which it can respond, how it has, as you've reported on, somewhat corner the ancillary services market, and what the potential to do that, not just at large scale in various spots around the grid, but to be able to harness localised batteries to deliver some of those services as we will need at local levels. The other big thing that's going to come out by the end of next month, I think, is the integrated system plan. Um, and this is, uh, we heard Don Harwin, the New South Wales Energy Minister, talking about transmission zones and need for transmission networks. Obviously, this is something that's very big on um, with your constituents. Um, how can we be confident that these transmission networks will be provided to these renewable energy zones if that's what happens, but the costs don't go through the roof? Uh, well, that's the challenge. That is, how do we make sure we get the transmission we need to link up to these new renewable energy zones, which again, the minister, as you say, the Minister talked about today and will be certainly in the integrated system plan coming from AMO. And how do we find ways, if you like, also in phasing? We don't need to build every transmission line now, but we want to make sure the timing of the investment makes sense for when the generation is going to happen. The bit we do have a fair idea on is the retirement schedule for the coal generators. So that of itself starts to make you think about what investment we need to see in generation, and then therefore you can sort of backfill of what do we want to see in transition, transmission. But there's no doubt affordability is a challenge. I mean, transmission is a very small part of customers' bill. Uh, the distribution parts and generation and retail are all significantly bigger than transmission, but we do need to make sure we manage this, we get the timely investment, we get the competition in procurement and other parts to make sure it's as cheap as possible. Now the other thing that you mentioned uh, that struck me um, was about um, gas networks and the possibilities with hydrogen storage, and I think you used the equation about there's enough storage in the gas network for 15 billion Tesla Powerwalls, um, which is interesting, but how does the gas networks get to be able to play that role, because the cost of battery storage is coming down, it's something that's actually spent or invested in by households and businesses behind the meter. How does gas get to compete with that sort of distributed technology? Well, first of all, 6 billion Tesla Powerwalls is the number in the Australian gas storage, and it is because if you think of the nature of gas, electricity has to be used, generally speaking, produced and used instantaneously. Battery storage is starting to change that, but the scale of it relative to the total electricity use at any one instant is relatively small. Gas, even fundamentally, is a, is a different issue. It is in a form in the pipeline. You can line in, you can store in more line pack and man manage that. Um, the thing that is really interesting about hydrogen is this is not an Australian-only thing. If you look around the world, lots of places, particularly those who have significant gas loads already, significant heating loads in colder climates, are doing a significant amount of work in hydrogen. Um, Japan apparently has spent 12 billion, uh, sorry, 12 million US dollars no, 12 billion US dollars uh, on R&D in hydrogen in the last few years. So they are having a really serious crack at this stuff. Um, and the big challenge is not so much can it work because technically pretty much the entire supply chain of electrolysis, fuel cells and using uh, hydrogen and existing gas appliance can all be done. It's all about getting the costs, getting the technology right and getting it to work. So we're not saying stop doing batteries. 
we're all going to do hydrogen. Not at all. We are saying hydrogen makes sense to explore as a potential suite of options to manage these challenges. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how that competes and lines up with pumped hydro um, schemes of various sizes and shapes and um, solar thermal and, and, and other ones. And if we do do hydrogen, can we make sure it's renewable hydrogen and not maybe brown coal hydrogen? Uh, well, look, we think absolutely. It's, it, given the changing nature of our generation fleet, the logical one is to, and, and in the Australian context, you're already seeing in South Australia, in the middle of a sunny, windy day, we're going to very soon start to get to stages of what do we do with this electricity? As you would know, like networks like Energex in Queensland are moving their hot water load into the middle of the day to be that solar sponge to try and soak it up. But we will soon get to the stage where we need more than that. And that's where yeah, even possibly localised hydro uh, electrolysis to make the hydrogen put into gas is certainly an option. It, it may not be the only option, but it's certainly worth looking at. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, Giles. Now, that was Andrew Dillon, the CEO of um, Energy Networks Australia. Um, a couple of interesting things he said there, David. One, about the uh, network um, investment plan, and that'll come down to the integrated system plan. Um, also talking about his attitude to uh, distributed um, generation. And um, one of the things he did not say in that interview, which was actually quite welcoming of rooftop solar, but he did say to other media, was about the threat from rooftop solar and you know the, the danger of total blackouts, which is we actually pointed out a day later was um, a bit nonsensical because the um, the issues with inverters is a non-issue. But um, anyway, um, FUD, Giles. Fear, uncertainty and doubt. It's a standard defence tech uh, mechanism from, you know, everyone from cigarette manufacturers, not that I'm comparing electricity networks with them, to, to fossil fuel generators. Um, anyone who's got something installed, the new, new stuff can't work, it'll cause everything to break, you should stay away from it or... Um, uh, in fact, the networks have also been responsible for looking at how distributed generation can be. They did a major study within Ajaya and released only a year ago, I think before Andrew Dillon became the chief executive, uh, pointing out uh, how distributed generation, particularly in Australia, is going to be uh, a big part of the market going Well, forward. that's exactly right. And um, <laughs> one of the things I, does, I think it does represent, and, and, and they accept that, but I think the big fight's going to be probably between them and the established retailers about who gets to manage that and sort of control those revenue flows. And there was a, there was a bit of debate. Well, uh, hang on. What about the customers? You know, this is the trouble with networks. They don't consider anyone's a customer except a retailer. You know, for, for a network, a household is just not a customer. Uh, they don't bill them directly. The billing comes through the retailer. So they don't give us stuff, uh, you know, in, in some ways, <laughs> <laughs> about, about how the consumer of the actual electricity thinks about them. Uh, and one of the things I have most like uh, about the solar revolution, if we can call it that, or the behind the meter uh, evolution of the system is that it does put the consumer, it gives them some control over what happens. And the last thing anyone wants is rules saying uh, unreasonable rules that unnecessarily uh, restrict the amount of solar and where and when you can consume it or whether or not you have to have storage with it. You know, storage at the household level is still only just marginally economic. Prices are not regrettably coming down in household batteries just yet, although I note that Tesla's appointed an ex-Amazon uh, executive to start looking at their household battery 
uh, business. And Tesla's the game shaker in, in, in households. So maybe we'll see something in a year or so. But right now, we're not seeing much no, progress. We're not, no. Um, it was interesting, though, to see the network people talking about the customer, um, which is interesting. They don't have access directly to the customer, and they would very much like to, but they're stopped by the ring fencing um, rules, and they're trying to find ways of getting around that. And, um, and that's where the tension between them and the retailers will come in, I think. Well, well the, the tension is about volume growth, right? I mean, whether it's networks wanting to put new boxes at the end of the street to manage the solar output flowing back up the river, if I can put it that way, whether it's transmission companies needing to put new transmission in for renewable energy zones, whether it's the investment to replace coal-fired generators in New South Wales, all of this has to be paid for. And if there's one thing Andrew Dillon did say, and everyone is increasingly understanding, uh, customers are consuming less electricity through energy efficiency and they don't want to be paying more, have a higher bills. Well, that's exactly right, exactly right. Um, a few other interesting network and grid things happened during the week. Um, one, Hydro Tasmania, did you have a look at the pumped hydro plan that they sort of announced? Um, talking about, um, there was a lot of talk about 4,000 gigawatts, um, 4,000 megawatts, sorry, of um, of pumped hydro capacity, but to actually unlock that, they'd actually have to build five different transmission lines across the state. So, um, um, which you know, with, with that many cables linking the mainland and Tasmania, it means we'll probably have to sort of take them on holiday when we go overseas next. But um, um, I'm not too sure whether that's actually a goer or not. Uh, did you have a look at that, David? Look, we've been thinking about the high, battery high. I think there is a case for building more wind in Tasmania. Uh, putting in some more pumped hydro, although there are environmental limitations, and possibly putting in another transmission line. I think that's that's an, a, a, a reasonable sort. That's the extent yeah, of it. Yeah. Now, New South Wales also came in with some um, interesting um, issues last week. Um, five days in a row, a lack of reserve was declared um, by the AEMO. On two or three days, I think we got as far as an LOR2, which means that um, one more thing is out and then they're in trouble or um, have to sort of take some action. They did sort of summon the emergency reserve on Friday, but didn't actually use it as far as I understand. Um, interesting stuff. The most aggrieved person, I think, in the whole of New South Wales, and, and most of this was caused by the lack of coal capacity. There was about four and a half gigawatts, which was unavailable. Some of that was planned, some of that was unplanned. Um, Talawara was unplanned. That was the gas generator. I think that was um, out as well. Um, uh, that was actually planned. Oh, forgive me, forgive me, that was planned. Um, News Corp Media made a lot about a reference to rooftop solar not being there, but that's only 100 megawatts out of about 5 gigawatts that, that was not available, so I don't think that was really a big thing. The most aggrieved person in all of this, as you point out in your very excellent insight into this, is um, Mike Howell from um, Tamago. Yes, look, Matt, Matt Howell is upset uh, when he has to take his aluminium pots offline, uh, which is basically he has to do, as I understand it, at the request of AGL. I think he would say that underlying it all, he just cares about his pots, you know, he's running a big business there. Um, um, they're not the sort of pots you might care about up at Byron Bay, but they're pots just the same. <laughs> Well, they're pretty, they're and, pretty and, and there's a lot of investment. Yes. They're very expensive pieces of kit, and whenever they they get damaged by being when having the electricity run up and run down in them too often, if there's a if there's a four hour blackout, it's basically the end of the pot line. That's what happened in Portland a year ago, mm -hmm. and he doesn't see 
you know, that the system sh shouldn't be able to deliver him some baseload power. And I think that this is a major concern for everyone. Uh, we all know Australia's got a re great renewable energy resource and in the long run, we're going to have a competitive electricity supply. The question is that we need to have some, uh, preserve our manufacturing, keep our prices down while we decarbonise. And so it needs a lot of cooperation. This is where I think the New South Wales government has got to get a lot more on board. Don Harwin makes, speaks okay, but delivers very little at the moment. And it's not necessarily his fault. I think it's the fault of the National Party in New South Wales. I personally pick on John Paralano as someone who could who could make a big difference to New South Wales if he would just get behind the push that's really need. We've got all these Gentailers that have announced they're going to close the coal generation. Coal and export coal this week was $150 a tonne. Even at the lower spec that New South Wales consumers have to put up with, it's still about $60 a megawatt hour of coal cost, variable coal cost, never mind all the other costs. New South Wales coal generation is a very limited future and the New South Wales government needs to get much more on the front foot about transitioning. Well, that's quite right. And um, But look, I mean, I don't think the issue, the, the problem is not so much the, uh, the lack of baseload because there was probably baseload around the place. The issue that last week was um, the lack of dispatchable generation at that particular moment. AGL decided they didn't want to pay that price, $14,000 a megawatt hour. So they told Tamago to sort of switch off or slow down and, um, and, and, and wind back down. So... Um, and I think this was the point made by AEMO in their um, assessment of it, is that um, new dispatchable capacity is needed, but it needs to be dispatchable, it needs to be flexible, and it needs to be on both sides of the supply and demand equation. No one is going to build any nuclear plants as John Barillaro wants. No one's going to build any co new coal generators um, as um, Mike Howell, if I'm interpreting correctly, seems to want and, um, and many others want. Um, it's got to come back into flexible and dispatchable capacity. Well, I think we could have done a lot more variable uh, renewables uh, and that would actually reduce the amount of dispatchable generation that has to be on load line at any one time. Uh, all I'm saying is that in my, in my opinion New South Wales needs more of a plan about how to develop its system. Uh, we've got Snowy Hydro mm. too, we've got Origin with Shoalhaven but there is no price signal and there is a lack of confidence in New South Wales because of the lack of commitment in part from the lack of from the New South Wales government to getting on with the job that has to be done. They're still in the denial stage and it's just not good enough. It's not good enough. And look, talking about plans, um, we understand from Claire Savage, who spoke at the Energy Networks um, conference last week, that the final draft, uh, well, not the final draft, well, I guess it's the final draft of the National Energy Guarantee could be released as early as late this week. Um, I went and um, Josh Frydenberg was also speaking the next day and I grabbed this little interlude from him. It was not a formal interview. It's what journalists call a doorstop. And I just grabbed this little um, thing from Josh Frydenberg. Let's go on to emissions. Um, you talked about 26% um, reduction target. That's not going to be um, changed. Um, yet most of the studies suggest that we're probably going to get there or pretty close to there just with the acquittal of the rep by 2020 or soon afterwards. Isn't there a strong case then for actually lifting the ambition of that electricity target because doesn't that then fail to provide the investment signal that you're talking about? Um, what is in the favour of renewables is the declining cost curve. Mm. Uh, we've seen the price of wind and solar come down substantially and the price of batteries come down with that too. Um, you will see more investment of renewables coming into the system. 
um, the National Energy Guarantee does have the right level uh, of emissions reduction. At the same time, it will help uh, put a premium on reliability, which will be important in the system. So we think we've got the balance right. So how do you get that investment signal then um, to bring in new investment? The investment if, the emissions, if the emissions standard, which is the only thing that will drive investment, is actually there. The investment signal is the National Energy Guarantee Framework, mm -hmm. uh, which has a decreasing emissions uh, profile and an increasing reliability one. So you're confident then that new investment will come in with wind and solar because of their costs accompanied by the appropriate amount of firm capacity and storage with it? I'm confident that we'll continue to see under the National Energy Guarantee significant investment in renewables. What does and let's not forget, Giles, because you obviously don't give us credit for this uh, because it doesn't suit your narrative, but the reality is um, Australia has, under the Turnbull government, seen a record level of renewable investment. Mm. We are now um, the third most popular destination for renewable investment on a per capita basis, more so than France, mm. more so than Germany, more so than China. And we've also seen $10 billion worth of um, renewable investment deals <laughs> finalised and closed over mm. the last year. Very significant indeed. Something you've conveniently ignored in your I don't publication. Think, I don't think we've actually ignored it. We just pointed out that it's through a mechanism that you guys try to destroy. So. You've ignored what's happened on. Uh, you've ignored the, the boost in renewables under the Turnbull government's if, watch. If, every day we talk about the boost in renewables. I think there's another okay. one going up there today. Last question. Uh, yeah, last question then. Um, what will the modelling from the energy, um, the NEG, show about um, the increased investment then that you're talking about in wind and solar? Have you seen the modelling? Sorry. Presumably, there's more modelling coming come out with the final draft of the. Uh, oh, I'll leave that. I'll leave that to the, the energy, energy security board. board. Okay. Thanks, but, George. But what the modelling to date has shown is that households will save under the National Energy Guarantee. Something that you should tell your 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 uh, readers about. I'll make sure they do. So that was Federal Environment and Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg. Um, David, look. Um Obviously, he's not going to go and lift his emissions target right now, but you do wonder exactly what the National Energy Guarantee is going to be if, as Claire Savage said, she does not expect the reliability to be triggered and um, if, as many analysts say, that the emissions target is already met. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering exactly what it's there for. Uh, I'm not sure. It's there for a political announcement and uh, doorstopper interviews, you know, uh, you tend to get lectured out by the politician who's making them. Um, look, yes. I, I'm more interested, I've said for weeks, I'm more interested in the integrated system plan and, and getting agreement on that. I think that's the foundation stone on which Australia's uh, electricity will be built, not the NEG. Um, uh, I, I, and state-based targets are going to, should, uh, with luck, overtake the NEG in terms of generating new investment uh, in yep. generation. I think that's exactly right, and along, along with the corporate um, demand as well. Because not as, apart from Gupta, we also had University of Queensland building their own solar farm. We've got Mars Australia commissioning or buying 50 megawatts from another solar farm in uh, Victoria to power six factories in Australia. So all quite good. And as you say, the integrated system plan, I think, is going to be critically important. And I think we can expect that in the next fortnight or so. And that's going to be really interesting.
David, um, so we, we await with interest the NEG and see what that has to say, if anything. And then further out, we've got the, um, well, the, um, the large-scale solar and storage conference um, co-hosted by Renew Economy in Sydney in a couple of weeks. Um, and then the integrated system plan. So certainly a lot, um, a lot to digest in the in coming times. I'll certainly be looking forward to that large-scale solar conference. Uh, I, I think we'll, there'll be a lot to be said at that. Good. Well, thanks very much, David. And um, look, thanks also to our sponsors, Solarate Energy and What Watches. And thanks to the listeners for um, joining us today. And um, please share with your friends and leave a review. And um, we'll talk again next week. Bye now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit wattwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today.